Welcome to Helix Talk, an educational podcast for healthcare students and providers covering real-life clinical pearls, professional pharmacy topics, and drug therapy discussions. This podcast is provided by pharmacists and faculty members at Rosalind Franklin University College of Pharmacy. This podcast contains general information for educational purposes only. This is not professional advice and should not be used in lieu of obtaining advice from a qualified healthcare provider. And now, on to the show. Welcome to Helix Talk, episode 84. I'm your co-host, Dr. Kane. I'm Dr. Schumann. And I'm Dr. Patel. And the title of today's episode is Rate, Rate, Don't Tell Me, Rate versus Rhythm Control in Atrial Fibrillation. So we'll be providing an overview, a little bit about AFib, but mostly talking about what are the advantages and disadvantages and kind of the nuts and bolts of rate control or rhythm control in patients with atrial fibrillation. And if you were waiting to hear something from Peter Sagal, you might as well just change your radio channel right now. So we'll kick it off with a patient case. And this is a fictitious patient. We're going to call her Elsa May. She's a 79-year-old female who comes to the clinic for just a routine checkup with no specific uh, complaint. She has diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, also known as systolic heart failure. In terms of her heart failure, she's a New York Heart Association class two patient, so she has some limitation of her physical activity. And during her vital sign check, it's discovered that she has an irregular and fast heart rate, and her heart rate is somewhere between 100 and 120, it's highly variable. So uh, Dr. Patel's clinic does a 12-lead ECG, and they confirm that she has AFib, atrial fibrillation, and this is a new diagnosis for her. Kind of in talking to the patient, she says, yeah, I've had some palpitations for a couple months, very nonspecific. For the most part, she's asymptomatic. When she uh, exerts herself, she might get a little bit of these palpitations, but for the most part, she doesn't even know that there's a problem going on. So in terms of her vitals, as we said, her heart rate's around 100 to 120. And her blood pressure is 125 over 85. And of course, when we have a patient with a new, a new arrhythmia, we always worry about ischemia. So we do do an ischemic workup for her and that for the purposes of this discussion is negative. So she has no new ischemia, just a new onset arrhythmia called atrial fibrillation. So really the clinical conundrum here is, is the question of, should we try to convert her back into sinus rhythm using a rhythm control strategy? or should we try to control the rate using a rate control strategy? And so I think the first question for you guys is, what exactly is going on in the, in the body in atrial fibrillation? So basically, it's kind of like an electrical mismatch or a short circuit, right? The definition of atrial fibrillation is when the atria is quivering at a very high rate. So we're talking anywhere between 300 to 600 beats per minute without any coordination of that movement with the ventricles. So usually they kind of beat in in synchrony, but this one uh, atria kind of beats on its own very fast rate, has no synchronization with the ventricles. Unfortunately, all humans have an AV node so that those atrial impulses of 300 to 600 don't convert through to the ventricle because if your ventricle beat at 300 beats per minute, you would die because you wouldn't have enough time to fill that ventricle. So the role of the AV node is to basically only send some of the impulses from the atria to the ventricle. In an AFib, it still does that job, um, but instead of a normal heart rate of, we'll call it 60 to 100, oftentimes these patients will send too many impulses through that AV node and they'll have a higher ventricular rate and that's where they get some of these palpitations. So the, ventri the ventricle does depolarize at irregular intervals here due to a variable number of impulses being conducted via the AV node. And so again, that one's at the fast rate 
And then keep in mind, though, the SA node is, is usually sending an impulse of 60 to 100 times a minute, but an AFib, the atria, are sending the impulse, as you mentioned, hundreds and hundreds of times per minute. So I guess the big question is, can we just not leave Elsa the way it is? Because she's not symptomatic for the most part, right? What's, mm-hmm. what's the big deal of leaving her in AFib? Well, so one thing to think about, and this is common in many patients with AFib, is heart failure. So one of the roles of the atria as it relates to cardiac contraction is that you get this atrial kick, which is this coordination of the atria pushing blood into the ventricle right before the ventricle is ready to contract. So you do lose some degree of cardiac output that's probably related to how fast that ventricle is going. So with Elsa May, for example, her heart failure could get worse. It doesn't appear that it has been, but in the future, especially if she became more stressed or tachycardic, she could go into heart failure or worsening heart failure because of that arrhythmia. And so then the heart has to work harder, increasing O2 demands, and then you have an increased ventricular rate, possibly uh, symptomatic palpitations. I know when I talk to my patients, I always like to use cars and plumbing as an analogy. So I think about the idea if you're not converting into the right gear and you keep those RPMs going on and on and on in your engine. And again, that can be destructive and keep it from the, the system itself is less efficient. So I think that kind of applies here as well. And the biggest comorbidity of atrial fibrillation is clot, right? That ends up in the brain uh, and then results into a stroke. So the idea over here is that the atria is quivering so fast that it's not pushing out all the blood and the remaining blood in the atria can clot, producing a clot that can mobilize and dislodge in any of your arteries in the brain. And of course, the the other thing that we worry about is kind of the long-term complications of being in an arrhythmia that your heart isn't designed to be in. So again, for someone like Elsa May, we worry that if her ventricle is going at this pace for too long, we might start seeing structural changes to the heart, especially the left side of the heart, that could actually worsen her heart failure over a long period of time, not just in the acute phase where it could put her into acute heart failure, but more the chronic phase where Maybe her ejection fraction worsens. Maybe the atria becomes more ballooned out. So these kind of chronic structural changes is something that we definitely worry about in leaving someone with AFib. So Dr. Patel, what are some of the risk factors that would make Elsa May at higher risk or make other individuals uh, potentially at risk for AFib? So our patient here is 79 years of age. So I would say older age definitely puts patient at a higher risk. We're looking at overall population of less than 1% of prevalence. But if you look at those older age patients, we're talking about greater than 80 years of age, that prevalence increases to 8%, which is pretty wide difference. And if you actually look at any clinical trial in AFib, the mean age is always quite elevated compared to many other trials. So if you look at the DOACs, for example, a typical DOAC trial for venous thromboembolism, like DVTs, those patients are typically like 50s, maybe 60s. If you look at the same drug class, DOAX for AFib, the mean age is closer to 70, 75, or even higher than that. And the other thing we look at is the NOIHA classification. So we mentioned that, that uh, Elsa May is uh, class 2. And so it can range anywhere from with class 1, a 4% prevalence of AFib, all the way to 50% with class 4. So this, again, is as you see a worsening of progression, again, that the rates of AFib uh, vastly higher there. And other structural heart diseases, such as you know cardiomyopathies, um, left ventricular hypertrophy, long-standing untreated or even treated hypertension, but that's you know out of control, um, that can lead to atrial fibrillation. And then finally, in my neck of the woods, which is probably a very different pathophysiology, we see AFib in acutely stressed patients. So this could be after open heart surgery, where the heart has just been cut on, and now we start seeing these electrical short circuits 
or uh, my favorite patient population, the septic shock patient population. We see a ton of new onset AFib in that population just because of the acute stressors and the cytokine storm that happens. Again, it's an irritation of the heart that causes these arrhythmias, but probably a different patient population. And so then now, you know, again, we look forward before we get to kind of uh, talking about medications, really want to define the goal that we're trying to target and then determine what treatment to get there. So really with our goals, first thing to do is to look at slowing that AV node conduction. Again, Dr. Kane, as you mentioned, so that fewer of those impulses get through the ventricle and so the system's not going so fast. And maybe a net effect of slowing that ventricular rate or the heart rate. And then because of that, subjectively, the individual may feel fewer of those palpitations within the chest. And so obviously we're talking about rate control and so we have to talk about what is that heart rate goal uh, for most patients if we are using medications to control the rate. So the classic goal is to keep the heart rate less than 80 beats per minute on resting and less than 100 beats per minute if it's with exertion. But then we look at some trial results and the RACE2 trial showed that keeping a little bit more lenient goal, so that's the resting goal of less than 110 beats per minute is okay, as long as patient is not symptomatic and having palpitation complaints. And the problem here is, again, heart failure is a common comorbidity in this patient population. And the vast majority of the AFib trials, they underrepresent this really important patient group of heart failure patients. So using RACE2 as an example, we didn't see a lot of class two and definitely very few class three and almost no class four heart failure patients. So because they're underrepresented and it's a, a population group that may have a detrimental effect from tachycardia, the ACC, AHA, HRS guidelines, which are linked in our show notes for episode 84, they actually recommend this more lenient goal for everyone unless you have a reduced ejection fraction. And then they still recommend this more conservative, less than 80 beats per minute resting heart rate goal if you do have stock heart failure. So, I mean, the common therapy that comes to mind when it comes to rate control are things that slow down um, AV node conduction. We're looking at beta blockers, we're looking at the non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers, and perhaps even digoxin. For Elsa May, you're thinking she'd probably already be on a beta, a beta box, so something like metoprolol, probably the succinate formulation, or, or carvedilol. What about a non-dihydropyridine, something like diltiazem or verapamil? So normally this would be a great option for someone with AFib. The problem is that she also has systolic heart failure. This drug class, diltiazem, verapamil, these are contraindicated in systolic heart failure. So we've really knocked out that drug class for her with respect to her rate control. And for me, the burning question always is, what is the role currently of digoxin? So where are we at, guys? Probably not for monotherapy. My understanding is that it should be used as an add-on because, again, it doesn't work very effectively to control the atrial rate. And we have to be careful with this drug having narrow therapeutic windows. So we have to dose accordingly and check the levels and uh, make sure that you know the levels are appropriate for AFib versus the heart failure. Again, our patient has heart failure, so will be a lot of people who have AFib. So I think to expand out beyond just, okay, the medications, but looking at the, this overall idea about rate control, advantages of it, again, these are medications I think that we're all pretty familiar with. Again, I'm, I'm sort of by no means a CARDS expert, but you know, I'm fairly comfortable with the use, for example, of beta blockers to, to address heart rates. Drug titration is easy, monitoring fairly straightforward. Again, we've got a heart rate, we want to control it, what's the rate at now? So what are some disadvantages, though, that the kind of a clinician may want to look for? 
So one problem is that if you think about it, we're actually treating the symptom, not the underlying problem. So the patient is an AFib. We've done nothing for the AFib. We've just controlled the ventricular rate. And it feels weird, right, that we haven't actually done the underlying problem. It's like giving Tylenol for an infection. Sure, that's something that's helpful, but intuitively you want to fix the underlying problem that caused the, the palpitations in the first place. Um, and it, it just seems wrong to not bring a patient back to their natural rhythm of sinus rhythm. And what would be some of the risk if you were to leave patient um, in AFib, right? So we're, as we talked about earlier, it'll be increased cardiovascular events, even worsening of their existing heart failure if that was the case. So talking about fixing the underlying problem, uh, I guess you're pointing out that we should fix the rhythm itself, right? So the other strategy is, do we do the rhythm control or not? What are, what's the deal there? So again, at this point, we're looking at actually, as you mentioned, treating the underlying concern. So cardioverting the individual back into NSR normal sinus rhythm using uh, direct current cardioversion electricity, or potentially we have medications that are designed as an antiarrhythmic. And then of course, once you temporarily convert the patient back to sinus rhythm, very commonly you'll give them additional drug therapy to maintain them in sinus rhythm, again, with antiarrhythmic drugs. So it's kind of this two-step approach. One is the actual cardioversion, and then the second one is this drug strategy to maintain their sinus rhythm and prevent them from going back into AFib. Right, so as far as, again, medications, again, in, in, as in my clinic, we're usually more focused on rate control, the meds I'm more comfortable with. So what, what is out there? What are kind of the current strategies as far as rhythm control? So for the rhythm control, we have to look at what are the other concomitant comorbidities that the patient has. So if our patient has heart failure, so if the patient can, has a past medical history of heart failure, the appropriate therapy will be amiodarone or defetilide. Uh, brand name is Tikison. Good. So that really hasn't changed since I was in pharmacy school. All right. I can work with that. So the other thing to think about is if you don't have heart failure, but you have either structural heart disease. So on echo, they see problems with the actual structure of the heart. Or if you have a history of coronary artery disease, that means cabbage, stent, and MI, anything like that, your drug therapy is different. So our first line therapy for those patients is, again, dofetilide or Tikison, dronetarone or Multac, or Sotolol, brand name is Betapace-AF. With the caveat that the sotolol component here is not appropriate if you have left ventricular hypertrophy, if that heart muscle is very enlarged. So uh, I guess the question then is always think about amiodarone as the go-to. So why not use amiodarone in that situation? So the problem is that amiodarone is really effective, but has a ton of what they call extra cardiac toxicity. So this is everything from your skin turning blue-gray to your thyroid not working to pulmonary fibrosis to LFT increases to rash. It has a ton of toxicities associated with it almost all of which don't deal with the heart at all. So because of that, if there are other drug therapies that we can use, especially if you're a little bit younger, we really prefer to avoid the use of amiodarone unless we really have to use it. And what if a patient doesn't have any of the comorbidities that we just talked about? What do we do then? So I guess in that point, we've, we've really got all of the options available. First line's probably still going to be uh, Tefetilide, Ticacin. We've got Dronetarone or Moltec. Again, we've got Flecainide, which I haven't mentioned yet. Tambacor, brand name. Propofenone, Rhythmol, brand name. Sotolol, again, Betapace is, is that option. And again, I think in this case, Amirodarone relegated to second line status because of some of those same extra cardiac toxicities. And again, another reason for amiodarone to be second line, in addition to all these toxicities and monitoring that you said, Dr. Kane, is drug interactions, right? Some of these patients are going to be on anticoagulant drug. If they can't afford or the insurance doesn't cover the DOAX, then they're going to be on drugs like warfarin, which carries a huge drug interaction with amiodarone. And I think 
if you, the listener, are a little overwhelmed by the barrage of drug names that we just listed, uh, we could easily do an entire episode just on antiarrhythmic selection. And that actually proves a point too, which is this is a really complicated topic when you get into this rhythm control strategy that we'll talk about some of the disadvantages in a second, but hopefully that proves the point that it's not a simple, straightforward, pick a beta blocker and titrate up. Now we're really thinking about who is appropriate for what agent and how do we monitor it and things like that. So I think there's a couple advantages of this strategy. We already kind of covered the first one is that we're putting you into that natural sinus rhythm rather than just simply a symptomatic treatment. However, not all the time. A number, a good number of individuals will not stay out of AFib, so they'll kind of spontaneously go back in, in and out of rhythm. The rates of rhythm will vary depending upon how often you're monitoring the patients too. Yeah, so as an example, if you do a spot check where every six months you go in and see if you're in AFib, the risk of going back into AFib is about 20% depends on a lot of different factors. But if you look at a study where they do uh, more continuous monitoring, so they send a patient home with a halter monitor for an extended period of time, the risk of failure approaches 50% or even higher at one year, meaning that 50% or more of patients will end up in AFib for a couple seconds or a couple minutes, maybe while they're sleeping and no one knows it, and you wouldn't detect that in clinic, but there is some amount of breakthrough that happens in a patient population with AFib. The other thing I know I do know is that a number of the patients who are monitoring for anticoag because of history of AFib, if they end up in normal sinus rhythm for a period of time, there ends up being kind of a dialogue going with cardiology about whether or not you can stop the anticoagulant. So what what are what are the thoughts there though? Because I know any time that I see it in our clinic, there's usually a pretty good argument about what to do. Yeah, most of my patients are, you know, ready to get off of warfarin, especially because of the very frequent INR monitoring. But regardless, you just said, Dr. Kane, that you know you might put these patients on halter monitor or do the spot check and find that there are still have episodes of AFib or in the paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. And so it, it is a little controversial whether we can pull the plug off anticoagulate completely uh, for this patient, but it might be helpful to decide in patients who are perhaps high risk of bleeding, uh, poor candidates for anticoagulation, um, that we can use this strategy to pull the anticoag plug. plug. Yeah, so I would still list this as a, a potential benefit or advantage for the rhythm control strategy is that in some patients you may be able to get rid of the anticoagulant, but as a blanket statement, it's not correct that you don't have to be on an anticoagulant. So then what are some uh, disadvantages as far as the strategy that we have to look at? Well, antiarrhythmics are, to begin with, very complex. Again, we talked about how the drug selection depends on a lot of different factors, mainly the comorbidities that the patients have, but also looking at whether they are ready to do frequent monitoring for drugs such as amiodarone. You know, some of these clinicians are not very familiar with the drug. Some of these drugs need to be actually started in the hospital with proper monitoring, right? So we are looking at all these drug-specific issues that we need to know and patient needs to know uh, before we can say this is your chronic therapy. And then just another thing to mention, just like we talked about antidepressants and renal function in the past, renal function here matters for a lot of these medications too. So again, an individual with a lot of complex comorbidities, this is one other um, wrench in the works that we have to be very careful of. And for me, especially being in the ICU with respect to acute kidney injury and renal dysfunction, as soon as I see a patient on any of these antiarrhythmics, a red flag always goes up because it is a huge safety issue in terms of now that they're in the hospital, things have changed, right? And antiarrhythmics are pro-arrhythmic in almost all circumstances, especially if you're giving the wrong dose or monitoring inappropriately. 
So someone has hypokalemia, you start a new drug that causes QT prolongation, their renal function gets worse. For whatever reason, things can change when they get to the hospital. So from a safety perspective, that should always raise a red flag. But even in the clinic setting, proper monitoring is important to make sure that they don't get things like QT prolongation and put them at risk for arrhythmias. That's a huge deal. And I think you're pointing out to the bad ones, like the torsade points. Um, that is uh, a possibility if a patient is in acute alterations of health status. So yeah, so I think in the end, some of it is that the process of kind of choosing that medication, which you want to use, is based on clinical trials, number of them showing harm when giving an antiarrhythmic to a certain patient population. And again, we always have to look at, as always, about what is the actual population in those studies relative to your patient population you have. But you want to keep in mind things like using propofenone or flecainide, patients with history of CAD, they, they died more often there. So probably something you want to be careful of in choosing that medication for your patient population. Yeah, so I think suffice it to say the biggest disadvantage with the uh, rhythm control strategy is going to be extra monitoring, extra side effects, and potentially a side effect including death because of side effects of the drug. Absolutely. So I guess the golden question here is, what is the best strategy? Do we go with the rate control or do we go with the rhythm control? Dr. Kane, what do you think? So if you look at the guidelines, as with any good question, the best answer here is, it depends. (sighs) So the guidelines, whether you look at the American guidelines or the European guidelines, they don't specifically say we endorse X approach, whether it's rate or rhythm control. But one thing that I really liked about the European guidelines, for example, is that they brought in things like patient preference, where you educate the patient on the two strategies and you give them pros and cons of each one and you have shared decision making, which I think is incredibly important, especially in someone like this, where these are typically older patients that may not want to be in the hospital for a couple days to have their antiarrhythmic monitored, or uh, maybe they don't want to pay for uh, this new expensive antiarrhythmic medication. Yeah, so I think in general terms, you're also looking at, again, the likelihood of things like you know staying in or out of rhythm. So one of the things, rhythm control may be better in those younger individuals, patients who haven't been in AFib as long, there's less structural heart disease, more symptomatic palpitations. Again, we want to try to put them back in rhythm, see if we can keep them in there for a period of time. On the flip side, if you've got an older individual with long-standing AFib and there's really concern about whether or not we're going to be able to get them back into rhythm or, or milder palpitations, it may be best then just to slow down and do a rate control strategy. And if you actually look at the literature, there's kind of rationale for why there is not a first-line preferred therapy. A lot of it deals with the trial called the AFFIRM trial. Yep, and to our listeners, the reference for the AFFIRM trial is in our show notes. But basically what this trial did is compare about 4,000 patients and um, give them either rate control or rhythm control strategy. And what we found is there was no difference in mortality, right? That's like the biggest outcome that really matters, whether, you know, they're they're in the sinus rhythm or AFib, the ultimate result is that. So there was no difference between the two strategy when it came to mortality. However, patients who were in the rhythm control group had more more hospitalization. So we're looking at morbidity data over here. Um, it was 80% in the rhythm control group versus 73% in the rate control group. Now there's got to be other trials out there. Maybe some, Dr. Kane, are there others? Maybe some with some fun, catchy sounding names. You got anything for me? There are. We have the PF trial, the race trial, race one, the staff trial, and then my personal favorite, the hot cafe trial. Yum. 
And these were all way smaller than Affirm, which is why Affirm is such a big deal. And as soon as you talk about rate versus rhythm, Affirm is the thing that comes to your mind. But uh, these are still important trials, right? So if you kind of group them all together and kind of take them at what the results were, we basically saw similar clinical outcomes, whether it was kind of mortality or some cardiovascular endpoint. For the most part, we see a similar quality of life and we see similarities with respect to symptoms related to AFib, like palpitations. So we don't really see any difference with respect to those endpoints. Some of the trials did indicate maybe slightly better exercise tolerance if we had a rhythm control strategy, but we did see, again, more hospitalizations and also more adverse drug reactions with a rhythm control strategy versus rate control, just like what we saw in Affirm. Um, and just to put a number to it in Hot Cafe, for example, one of my favorite acronyms, 74% risk of being hospitalized with rhythm control versus 12% risk of being hospitalized with rate control. So that's pretty significant. It's super significant. And part of that may deal with the fact that uh, some of these agents for rhythm control, you have to be in the hospital to have titration done, especially with monitoring and things like that. But even with that said, that is incredibly inconvenient for a patient to have to sit in a hospital bed just to have their drug therapy titrated. Yeah, I think it goes back to, again, something you mentioned is the quality of life piece about what we're trying to do here. And then thinking back to our patient, Asame, she has heart failure, right? So it's keeping in mind that most of these trials don't include or underrepresent the patient who has that concomitant comorbidity of, you know, having a heart failure. So again, remember that AFib uh, and CHF coexist very commonly, but these patients are underrepresented in these trials. So question is, can we apply the results of these trials to our patient? So maybe there's a really good trial again with a really catchy name. There is, Dr. Schumann. So in this case, the trial would be called the AFCHF trial. That's not catchy. So the AFCHF trial was 1,300 patients with AFib who also had a reduced ejection fraction and had CHF, symptoms of CHF. And try as they might, they did not show any difference with any clinical outcome that you would care about, whether it's cardiovascular death, all-cause mortality, worsening heart failure. But again, they also did show that if you were in the rhythm control strategy arm, your risk of hospitalization in the first year was higher, 46% versus 39%. And then the trial failed to show a statistically significant increase for the entire duration. So not just a one year hospitalization rate, but the entire trial duration, but they were really close with a p-value of 0.06. So given all of the data that we have, I think it is fair to say that whether you have heart failure or not, whether you're in these smaller hot cafe type trials or the Affirm trial, we see a similar scenario that clinical outcomes are probably the same, but hospitalization risk is worse with the rhythm control strategy. And I think it kind of goes back to what you're mentioning, Dr. Kane, about, you know, especially early on, that it's about getting it right, trying to figure out the right dose, the hospitalization to start the medication, and that as time goes on, maybe that difference seems to level out as now the individual, once they've gotten through all the, the ups and downs of adjusting their rhythm control regimen, that they, they seem to, in the long run, hospitalization is similar. So that may be important to note down the road. And also to think about, you know, these studies looked at whether the patients were hospitalized or not uh, for various different reasons, Dr. Schumann, you just mentioned, but antiarrhythmics do come with monitoring requirements too, right? So again, what you said, Dr. Kane, earlier about involving patient and in making a shared decision, whether they are willing to come to the clinic very often to do this extra monitoring or even that spot checking, um, as you were saying earlier, it's really important to discuss that with patients. So let's go back to our patient, Elsa May. You know, we've kind of covered the pros and cons of both the rate and the rhythm control strategy. What are some factors, obviously we've talked to Elsa May, but what are some factors that might push us in one direction or the other? 
So I think the first thing to look at is some of those patient-specific factors. You know, maybe we're initially leaning towards rate control, but reasons for it, again, we're, we're talking somebody who's maybe an older individual, very mild symptoms. So maybe in that case, we can just up titrate on our beta blocker regimen. Again, especially, you know, in outpatient setting, fairly easy to do, fairly easy to monitor. And if you think about it, beta blockers used pretty commonly for CHF as a whole. And so she may benefit from the medication as it were, just to increase it anyway. So here we're talking about not adding another medication, but just optimizing what she's on. So maybe less drug-related cost, less pill burden, you know, these are all favorable things if you look at patient adherence perspective. Yeah, then I think also to look at, you know, the patient preference. So does she want to be cardioverted? Is that going to be, again, for an older individual, is that, what kind of hassle is that? What else we bring into the table when we hospitalize somebody? Maybe doesn't want that and all the, the path of the initiation, titration, monitoring, again, anything else going on in the hospital, the stress of it all. And, you know, I think that it would be absolutely wrong of us to just conclude without talking about her stroke prevention management because of her AFib. So as we, as we said earlier, patients with AFib are at higher risk of embolic stroke. And so the strategy we employ in deciding whether a patient goes on anticoag or not is calculate the CHAD score, right? So if we calculate her CHAD's um, two-vast score, um, she gets 1.4 heart failure, 1.4 hypertension. Her age gives her two points because we're looking at CHAD's VAS score. She has diabetes, so she gets one more point for that. And her gender, being female, gives her one point. So we got six points. And what it means to have six points is that she's a very high risk of having a stroke. So whatever strategy that we go with, either rate control or rhythm control, we have to make sure that she's on proper anticoagulation treatment. Right, and then we have to look again about some of those drug interactions that may influence the, the rate control versus rhythm strategy. And of course, this could be its own podcast episode in terms of anticoagulation management in AFib. But the most important thing to take away is that AFib management is kind of this bi-directional approach where you're worried about the stroke management and the stroke prevention, but you're also worried about the rhythm component of it, whether it's rate of rhythm control and the palpitation management. So you really have two very distinct goals of therapy that you always have to think about when you have a patient with AFib. They're both very important. So to kind of wrap things up, in terms of some key points for me, number one is older age and heart failure are two of the most common risk factors for AFib. With that said though, heart failure is a very commonly underrepresented patient population in the AFib trials. And sometimes we have some question marks in terms of what are our goals of therapy? What is the most appropriate management strategy for those patients? And so the second point is maybe one of the first things that come to mind is the idea about a rate control strategy using a beta blocker, non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker, maybe digoxin to reduce the ventricular rate, give that symptomatic relief to decrease the palpitations. On the flip side, if you're looking at rhythm control, that involves you know, a cardioversion in the hospital and then the use of antiarrhythmic medications on the outpatient side to maintain that um, sinus rhythm and prevent the recurrence of them coming back to AFib. And essentially there is no long-term clinical outcome difference between rate and rhythm control. Rate control, you have fewer hospitalizations, which is a big deal. You also can utilize drug therapy that has fewer ADRs that people are more familiar with. In contrast, so rhythm control may give you slightly better exercise tolerance, but the problem with rhythm control is that it isn't always effective, and actually for a number of patients, it's ineffective in maintaining sinus rhythm, and it requires very close monitoring. So I think that wraps up episode 84 quite well. If you'd like to take a look at our show notes, we have both the AFFIRM trial, the AF-CHF trial, and also the AHA-ACC-HRS guidelines for management of AFib. 
We love the five-star reviews in iTunes, so keep those coming. Uh, with that, I'm Dr. King. I'm Dr. Schumann. And I'm Dr. Patel. And as always, study hard. If you enjoyed the show, please help us climb the iTunes rankings for medical podcasts by giving us a five-star review in the iTunes store. Search for Helix Talk and place your review there. To suggest an episode or contact us, we're online at helixtalk.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Helix Talk. This is an educational production, copyright Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science.